So we've been working our way through the book of Galatians, and today we find ourselves starting Galatians chapter 2. So if you remember, Galatia was a region. This is one of the earliest books of the New Testament. Paul, he traveled through that region, through that area. He preached the gospel. Churches were formed, and there's many churches in Galatia. And then after he left, some teachers came in and said, yes, this gospel thing that Paul preached is good. This good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, that He died for your sins. All of that is good, that you're saved by grace, but... And then they added something to it. And they said, you need to keep the Old Testament law. You need to, the men need to be circumcised. You need to keep all of the Old Testament. You need to follow Old Testament law in order to truly be saved and to grow in your walk with the Lord. And Paul writes this letter to correct that thinking. He writes this letter saying, no, that is not at all the Gospel. The Gospel that I preach to you is the very same Gospel that all the other apostles had. It's the Gospel of grace. Gospel simply means good news. It's the good news that even though we are sinners, that in spite of the fact that every one of us is a sinner, that God sent His Son Jesus to come to live a perfect life, a sinless life, and to die on the cross for our sins. That He was raised on that third day. Defeating sin and death and that He's coming back. And that, in a nutshell, is the Gospel. But in reality, this whole book, all of the Bible, is the Gospel. It's the good news of what God is going to do and has done through His Son, Jesus. It's a promise of God calling a people to Himself through the work of the Promised One, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Christmas is an opportunity not just to remember some random baby who was born, some 2,000 years ago, but instead the coming of the Messiah into the world to begin that perfect life who would ultimately sacrifice His life for us. So as we work through Galatians, we'll see this theme again and again of Paul correcting these false teachers and addressing the real Gospel, the true Gospel, to the believers, to the churches there in Galatia. So with that in mind, uh, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word, let's look at Galatians 2, verses 1-10. through Galatians 2, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the Gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, 
James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So if you remember from last week, we saw that God opens people's eyes to the truth of the gospel. Paul, he's, he's defending his apostleship, and he's defending his gospel message. But his point is not simply to defend himself, but ultimately to defend the truth that he proclaimed. And in so doing, he gives his testimony. He shares how God worked in his life. And if you remember, we saw that God opens people's eyes to the truth of the gospel. That God revealed the truth to Paul. And we saw that God changes people's lives through the power of the gospel. That God picked up Paul, turned him around, and changed his life forever. And then lastly, we saw that God encourages people's hearts through the proclamation of the gospel. That He encourages and builds up and grows His church through the proclamation of the gospel. And in today's text, Paul continues right where we left off last week by outlining some of the events following his conversion on the road to Damascus. If you remember, he was on the road to Damascus. He was going to persecute Christians. God spoke to him and said, Saul, that was his name then, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he he then said, I have a plan for you to use you to speak to the Gentiles, to speak to the nations. And Paul went and acted as an apostle, as a sent one to the world. So he's on his way to the road to Damascus, and Paul outlines some details. And just in the same way, just like last week, Paul here is doing the same thing, but he's not merely trying to defend himself, but again, defend the truth of his message. So without further delay, let's look at the first point in our sermon outline. Number one, the truth of the gospel. Number one, first thing we see is the truth of the gospel. Look at verse one. He says, Then, after an interval of 14 years... Now, this is probably 14 years after the Damascus Road incident. So it's not that he says uh, the Damascus Road incident happened, and then three years happened, and then another 14. We don't know for sure, but more than likely he's saying 14 years after the Damascus Road incident, this is what took place. He said, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, he's not necessarily saying for a second time. He may have made many trips. But he's saying again, yet again, I went up to Jerusalem. And who did he go with? He goes with Barnabas, a converted Jew, right? And a, faith, a man who faithfully ministered alongside Paul. The one who was the great encourager. The one whose name even means son of encouragement. That he was the one who would encourage Paul and encourage the saints. So he goes up with Barnabas to Jerusalem. But then he says this, taking Titus along also. And don't miss this. This is significant. He takes Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile who who became a follower of Jesus and who Paul referred to as his own child in the faith. He takes along this Titus with him, almost as exhibit A. The false teachers were saying, in order to truly be saved, you must be circumcised. You must become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You have to come through the Jewish Old Testament, the Jewish system, in order to have salvation in Christ. And Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem, I took Barnabas, and I took Exhibit A with me. Here he is, he's Titus. 
In verses 2 through 3, he says, we read this, he says, It was because of a revelation that I went up. We don't know the details of this revelation, but the implication is clear. God told Paul to go to Jerusalem, so he went. He says, God spoke to me, and I went to Jerusalem, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private. He says, I submitted to them, I proclaimed to them the gospel that I had been preaching for these last 14 years among the Gentiles, those who were non-Jews. He says, and I submitted it to those who are of reputation, that's Peter, James, and John, we learn later on, I submitted it to them for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now when Paul says, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain, he isn't saying that he was afraid that he got the gospel wrong. Some actually argue this. That Paul says, I I submitted to them the gospel because I was afraid that I was getting it wrong all along. That's not at all the case. Because Paul goes on to say, I didn't waver for a moment. Remember, this is the same Paul who we saw a couple of weeks ago said, even if I or an angel from heaven, I don't care if an angel from heaven comes down and proclaims to you a gospel that's contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Paul said there's one gospel, one gospel, one gospel throughout this letter, and he said, and I didn't waver for even an hour. I stood firm in that. So when he says, for fear that I might have been running in vain... He certainly doesn't mean that he thinks he got the gospel wrong. He'd been preaching the gospel for 14 years, faithfully. The first thing Paul did when Christ came into his life was begin to share what Jesus had done for him. Paul was convinced of the truth of the gospel. So his concern was not in relation to the message that he had proclaimed, but, but with regard to the unity of the church. He'd been saying that his message, this message which he knew to be true, was the same message as the other apostles. But the question was, was it now being undermined in some way? Was Paul's message being undermined so that his ministry would be seen as being done in vain? That others, other apostles even, had corrupted or let the gospel message be corrupted? Paul was so concerned about where the other apostles stood on this issue that he goes up to Jerusalem. And notice what he does. He addresses them in private. That this was not a public issue at this point. Paul simply says, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that I'm running in vain, that I'm preaching this gospel, and that the other apostles are undermining me. And he says, so I went up to Jerusalem. It was because of a revelation I went up. God told me to go up. And I went up and I addressed these apostles in private. And I presented to them this gospel that I had been preaching. The Greek behind that actually speaks to, I I laid it before them. I I set it before them as fact, is what he's saying. I set it before them and said, what say you, Peter, James, and John, is what he's really saying. We understand this more clearly, why Paul had such a concern when we read Acts 15. Acts 15 verses 1-2 through says this, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, they didn't say, this whole Jesus thing is ridiculous. Don't pay any attention to that. They said, yeah, Jesus is good, but you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. Verse 2 says, And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, they argued with them, 
the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some, of, and some others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. So it's interesting. Paul says in Galatians, I went up because of a revelation. God spoke to me, I went up. And here in Acts it says that the brethren said, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem and address the apostles and elders concerning this issue. These two things don't need to be mutually exclusive. God spoke to Paul and said, go up, address this issue, because these people are coming down from Judea, and the church, the brethren, there in Galatia also said, yes, go up. That They said, you need to go up and determine where this is coming from. This needs to be solved for the unity, for the sake of the church, and for the glory of God. These men, these false teachers came down from Judea. Paul goes up to Jerusalem. He addresses the leaders there. And Paul's concern is not that he has the gospel right. Again, he's convinced of that. His concern is that the apostles have it right. That they're unified in one gospel message. And that they've let no one undermine it. You see, a key theme to this whole section is unity. It's truth and unity. Truth in the Gospel, unity in the Gospel. That's the foundation upon which the church was built and is being built. And these false teachers came in, and they came in with the idea that they would divide and conquer. Paul goes on and he refers to the apostles in Jerusalem as those who are of high reputation. And he says, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Paul's not negating their influence. He's not saying, you know that, Peter, James, and John, they're just a, they're just a couple of schmucks. I don't, really, I don't care what people think of them. That's not at all his point. He's not negating their influence. He knows and recognizes the fact that they are highly respected. That's why he's concerned. And he wants to make sure that they're holding fast to the truth. For if they let these Judaizers taint their view of the Gospel, he knows it will have a profound impact on his ministry and on the church as a whole. So Paul takes his, to, his concern to Jerusalem, but then look at verse 3. It says, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. The word compelled means, uh, the ESV translates it, was forced. He says, Even though I took Titus with me, I presented Titus, even Titus, they didn't say, Yeah, we're going to force him to be, bapt- to, to be circumcised. Excuse me, circumcised. They, they didn't say that at all. He says they didn't compel him to be circumcised because they saw the grace of God in Titus. They knew the true Gospel. That the Gospel is that you're saved by grace through faith apart from works. That that not through our works. They understood there was a result of works in believers' lives. But they said it's not about grace through faith plus circumcision or anything else. That it was only by the grace of God that one could be saved. So they saw the grace of God. They didn't force Titus to be circumcised. And then skipping down to verse 6, we read this. But from those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Again, the point is not that he's undermining their authority, but instead that he's saying the message, their message was more important than the position they held. That if they undermined the Gospel message, their position meant nothing. Even if I or an angel from heaven he had just said, preaches a different gospel. They're to be accursed. He says, it doesn't matter if they're apostles. What matters is do they have this gospel right? 
He says, those who are of high reputation, they contributed nothing to me. In other words, they added nothing to the Gospel. They didn't bring more into the Gospel. Instead, they said, instead they said the Gospel is a Gospel of grace. And Peter, James, and John stood firm in the truth of the Gospel. So now go back to verses 4 and 5 and look at those verses. He says, but it... These are difficult verses here. He says, but it, that is the, the teaching that Titus and others had to be circumcised, it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the Gospel would remain with you. This language should jump off the page. Remember just a couple of weeks ago, when he said, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you. You're so quickly, so easily turning from the truth of the Gospel. He says, you were uprooted easily. And then he contrasts that with himself. He says, and when they came, we did not yield in subjection for even an hour. We were firmly planted. We understood the Gospel. We knew the Gospel. We lived the Gospel. We knew that it was only by grace that we were saved. And we weren't going to let anyone add to that in any way. He says, and we did so so that the truth of the Gospel would remain with you. You know, I want you to notice several things from these verses. Number one, the false brothers had been brought into the church. They were actually brought in. It says they were secretly brought in. They were in the church. And I think the implication that we have here is that often our biggest dangers don't come from the outside, but instead the inside. They come from within the walls of the church. They'd been brought in secretly. Number two, they're not brothers, but false brothers. The New Living Translation calls them so-called believers. In other words, they, they thought they were Christians, people thought they were Christians, but they weren't truly believers. They weren't truly united with Christ. They were only false brothers. Thirdly, they were purposeful in their intent. It says they sneaked in to spy out our liberty. That speaks to purpose. They actually infiltrated the church to act as spies. And likely, they thought the ends justified the means. It's not to say that every false teacher has evil intent in their heart, although it is evil to teach falsely. They may think they're doing the right thing. And these false teachers may have said, you know what, if we let these Galatians go, and we just say salvation is by grace, who knows what they might do? We need to constrain them. We need to tell them to live morally. Do you know what will happen if you just say salvation is by grace through faith? Then Christians will do all kinds of crazy stuff. We need to make sure that we give some moral principles for how they are to live. And they likely thought they were doing the right thing, but they were deceived. And they came in to spy out their liberty and to undermine the gospel of grace. The fourth thing is that they were undermining the gospel. Paul says they were seeking to bring them into bondage. They'd been freed from slavery, but they no longer were subject to the law. And now they were saying you need to somehow live in such a way that you're pleasing God through all of your actions. When all of the Old Testament says that's not possible. That even our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. That there's none righteous, no, not one, is what Scripture teaches us. And they're undermining the gospel of grace by saying that they could live a righteous and good life. 
and somehow, in that way, please God. So Paul tells the churches in Galatia about his trip to Jerusalem, and he does so to underscore the truth of the Gospel. He wants them to know that these men are saying that the Galatians need to keep the Old Testament laws, that these men who are saying this are wrong. As he said in Galatians 1, verse 7, he said, they're disturbing you, and they want to distort the Gospel of Christ. So he says, so I went to Jerusalem, I even took Titus along as Exhibit A, and I proclaimed the Gospel of grace to those who were there, those who were recognized as leaders, Peter, James, and John, And you know what? They didn't tell Titus that he needed to be circumcised. Nor did they add a single thing to my message. Instead, they said, you know what, Paul? You're right. That's the gospel. We agree. You are right on. They didn't add a single thing to the message. As I mentioned, the two themes that run throughout this chapter are unity and truth. Paul wants unity in the churches in Galatia. But he wants them to be unified in the truth. Not just unified, but unified in what is right. Just like he and Peter and James and John were. Because he knows that any other foundation will not stand. So he wants to be sure that they're building on the sure and steady foundation of the gospel of grace. So having seen number one, point number one, the truth of the gospel, let's consider the second point in our sermon outline. Number two, the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel. Look at verses seven through nine with me. The call of the gospel. He says, but on the contrary, meaning instead of adding to the gospel, on the contrary, seeing that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, because it's the same God who worked in both of us, and recognizing that the grace that had been given to me, James and Peter and John, who were reported to be be pillars of the church, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So this is what he says. He says, but on the contrary, instead of adding to the gospel... They gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They approved of what we were doing, and they gave their blessing. And they did so so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. You see, they recognized Paul and Barnabas' call to share the gospel to the Gentiles. And when they recognized that, they said, go! They agreed with Paul who later wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. You see, while there's unity in the truth of the gospel, there's also diversity in the call of the gospel. There's diversity. They said, just as Peter was to go to the Jews, so you're also to go to the Gentiles. Praise God, go and present the true gospel message, just like you have been. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's diversity, and yet there's a unity of purpose. We're all called to go and make disciples. That's the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We're all unified in that. It extends to all who are God's children. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all of creation. See, there's a unity of purpose, but there's diversity within that unity. We're not all called to minister to the same people in the same way. And you see that clearly in the life of Paul and the life of Peter. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common 
good. There's unity within the, the church, but there's also diversity within the church. That's why Romans 12, he also says, there are many members and one body. And all the members don't have the same function. But we're individually members one of another. So having seen the truth of the Gospel, and the call of the Gospel, that we're called to be unified in purpose, but diverse in ministry, let's consider the third and final point in our sermon outline. Number three, the fruit of the Gospel. Look at verse 10. The fruit of the Gospel. He says, They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. He says, They asked us to remember the poor, and it wasn't like Paul said, Oh, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. He says, I was eager to do it. It had already been on my radar screen. I was eager to do that very thing. You see, that's because Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That the natural fruit of the Gospel is concern for others. The, the, the fruit of the Gospel is a love for others and a desire to serve the Lord. A desire to care for all, but especially the saints. That's why Jesus told a story about a good tree who bore good fruit and a bad tree that would bear bad fruit. And He says, beware these men because they're false prophets. And, but, and they'll come in and they'll come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And they're going to say, in that day, when Jesus says, when Jesus says to them, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? They're going to say to Jesus, didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? And Jesus will say, it's not about what you did. He says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So your good deeds, you're trying to be saved by your righteousness or by your good deeds? That'll not happen. However, the fruit of the Gospel is righteousness and good deeds. You see, one says that I will live out my righteous acts and my good deeds so that I can be saved. And the other one says, because I'm saved, I will naturally, the natural fruit of that is righteousness and good deeds. It will flow out of me because it is what is in me. Paul says, so when they asked us to remember the poor, it was the very thing I was eager to do. It just flowed out of me. Because I considered the truth of the Gospel. I'd been obedient to the call of the Gospel. And the fruit of the Gospel was the natural result of those things. You see, there's great danger, I think, in the church today. I think there's great danger that we think that we can somehow, like the Judaizers, be saved by keeping the law. That maybe my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. That maybe I've, got an, I've done enough good that I'll be able to please God. That is not biblical doctrine. That is the biggest, the biggest joke I have heard in light of what Scripture says. That is not at all true. Scripture says every one of us has sinned All of us have fallen short. See, we can't be saved by the law. 
But then there's also this danger that we can say, we're going to live by grace. It's all grace. I'll go out and sin so that grace may abound. And that's not at all what Scripture teaches. That there's a natural fruit that flows out of being connected to Jesus. And I'm afraid that both ends of the spectrum often try to get saved by works. That the far right say, I'm going to be saved because I'm a good person. I go to church. I do these things. That I I care for the poor. That I'm faithful to my wife. That I don't watch things on TV that I shouldn't. That I don't cuss. That I don't chew. Whatever. I don't do these things. I'm a good little Christian boy. And therefore, I should be saved. And then there's the other end of the spectrum. There's the other end of the spectrum that says, well, the Gospel is about loving people. I mean, it's Thanksgiving. You've got to buy people turkeys. You've got to serve them meals at your church. Open up the doors and just love the people and do good deeds because those good deeds will get you into heaven. And they're both wrong. They're both nonsense. And I'm afraid that, neither, that we won't fall into either one of those camps. I'm afraid that instead we'll try, to, we'll try to straddle the fence and we'll walk down the middle. And we'll go, well, maybe a little bit of my good deeds and maybe a little bit of my good behavior will get me there. That's not at all the Gospel. You see, instead the Gospel is nothing you can do. Nothing. There's nothing that you can do to please God. But that instead all you can do is throw yourself upon the Messiah. Beg for His grace. And that in so doing, His grace will be given to you. His unmerited favor. You see, Paul didn't want the Galatian believers to get it wrong. He didn't want them to misunderstand the Gospel. Salvation produces love. Salvation produces righteousness and good deeds. Righteousness and good deeds don't produce salvation. That's why in Galatians later on he says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we don't grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. He says that. He says, let us do good. But then he goes on in verse 14 to say, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, his only boasting could be by what Christ had done for him by grace through faith. So having seen the truth of the Gospel, that it was a Gospel of grace, the call of the Gospel, that there was unity in that truth, but diversity of ministries, and the fruit of the Gospel, that there was a natural outworking, a result of that Gospel. Here's the big question. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this message, the truth of the Gospel, the call of the Gospel, and the fruit of the Gospel, and how do we then apply it to our lives here as believers? Well, number one, we need to remain firmly rooted in the truth of the Gospel. It needs to be our foundation. There's so many churches that have abandoned the Gospel and they're trying to do all these good deeds without any basis for them. And you cannot sustain a church that way. You cannot sustain anything that way. We need to be firmly rooted in the truth of the Gospel. That it's our only foundation. 
Secondly, we need to respond obediently to the call of the gospel. That not every one of us has the same gifts. Not every one of us has the same ministry. But we're all called to share the gospel. We're all called to give glory to God in our lives. We're all called to be obedient to whatever place he, whatever station, wherever He has placed us in life. We respond obediently to the call of the gospel and go out and make disciples, proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we glorify God by bearing the fruit of the gospel. And it's still my fear. I'm going to say this again and again, that it's my fear that we get this backwards. That we end with, we need to glorify God by bearing the fruit of the gospel. And that we leave here thinking that somehow I just need to produce fruit. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Unless you abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. And sometimes I think, even in my own mind, I start thinking, I need to do better. I need to do more. I need to have, I need to I need to bear more fruit as a Christian. And I start trying to produce fruit like I'm a little fruit factory. Instead, Jesus said, you're not a fruit factory. You're just a, you're just a branch. Just abide, abide in the vine. If you're connected to the vine, you know what? Then the, the fruit will be born through you. Or to you. And when we get it backwards, it's because we're not firmly rooted in the truth of the Gospel. Only by His grace are we saved. And only by His grace will we grow. So we need to be unified in doctrine. Unified in mission. Though we each have a different role, we all are to proclaim the truth of the Gospel. And when that happens, then we will glorify God with the fruit of the Gospel. In Sunday school, we looked at Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, and uh, says this, For I will, take from, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. This is the promise to the Jews. I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to gather you from the nations. I'm going to bring you back to your land. But then he says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. This is speaking of the promise that's realized in Jesus. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times in just those verses. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And then he says, and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That when we think that somehow we're going to observe His ordinances, that we're going to glorify God by producing our own fruit, it doesn't happen. Instead, we need God to work miraculously in our lives. We need to understand the truth of the Gospel. We need to respond obediently to the truth of the Gospel. And then, we will glorify God by bearing the fruit, the true fruit of the Gospel. 